Welcome to this episode of With Purpose. My guest today is Greg Hagen, someone I know well through my work at Coda and Greg's work at CCS Fundraising. It's uh, a pleasure to talk to Greg today. He's a principal and managing director at CCS, where he provides fundraising counsel and philanthropic advice to the nonprofit sector. And Greg's a member of the CCS board of directors. He brings a huge amount of experience, both professionally and in a volunteering capacity to his work with the nonprofit and philanthropic community. He also has a really strong and interesting link to Australia and to sport. And I think you'll really enjoy listening to what Greg has to say, hearing his story, and particularly learning from the experience he talks about when it comes to fundraising. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Greg, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm well, David. How are you this morning? I am feeling pretty good, actually. It's great to see you. Um, and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So how's things with you? Are you busy? Things are great. Yeah, things things are great. Life is good. Very, very busy. Uh, it's been several years now, as we know, since the world went upside down and inside out, hopefully on the other side of that. And uh, actually looking forward to being back in Australia in about three or four weeks. Very excited about that. Yeah, it's always good to see you, Greg. But there's actually quite a, quite a story to your Australian history right it's not merely a series of business trips so tell us a bit about that what's your connection to Australia yeah I feel like I have a very deep and personal uh, connection to Australia I was in Australia for the first time 23 years ago I was a junior at Boston College so I did one of these exchange programs it was supposed to be an initial six months uh, second semester junior year and I had such a good time I had to uh go back to the States, but then come right back to Australia for a first semester senior year, which was a very unusual move, especially when you're a senior at Boston College. And that's the year that you and all your buddies are supposed to go to Notre Dame for the big football game. That's that's going to happen. But uh, just by way of illustration, that's that's how meaningful and fantastic Australia was at that time, where I had a chance to study at the University of New South Wales, I was able to play on the soccer team at UNSW, actually went to Ballarat with uni games, which was quite the experience, as we would all imagine. And of course, the Olympics were happening at the time. And I, I had a chance to work with NBC Sports and the NBC compound of the International Broadcasting Center. And that was just fantastic. So that 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 experience, all those memories just really anchored with me all this time. And, and to top all that off, for the first semester I was down there, I was living with uh, other Americans from different schools in, in the U.S. But for the second semester that I was down there, I lived with a local Aussie family and uh, re really connected with them as well. So it, it it almost feels like a second home to me in so many ways. Yeah, well, I can see that. You know, right back to the start of what you said, I think you're the you're, you're one in a very long queue of people that have made, um, you know, unusual moves in order to extend their stay in Australia. <laughs> you were here at a great time. I mean, um, yeah. the Sydney Olympics, that was a that was a fantastic time. But, you know, with pe people listening to this and people that know you here in Australia and, and elsewhere will think about you as an advisor to nonprofits working with philanthropy. Um, but as you said, you, you know, you, you had in your early career, you had that time with NBC during the Olympics and ABC Sports in Japan, South Korea for, for the FIFA World Cup, soccer. I mean, well, tell me about that. That's a very interesting um, combination of careers, Greg. 
Yeah, it sure is. And you just never know life's journey or where you're going to go and to yourself as well, right? Maybe you're down in Australia for a month or a year and now it's 20 years or however long it's been. So it's mm -hmm. just an amazing place. But I studied uh, history and philosophy at Boston College as an undergrad and environmental science is a focus too. And I always thought I was going to go to law school. And then this special thing happened midway through college where I did go to Australia and I'd always been involved in sports. I played sports my entire life uh, with the Olympic Development Program, on regional teams, on travel teams at BC for, uh, for a couple of years. But when, when I came to Australia and got a, a, a taste and an experience of sports broadcasting, I really loved it. I had so much energy from it. It was a great experience and learned so much and always, always a bit of an energizer, always a bit of, of a rush in doing so. And at the same time, I never necessarily saw myself as a producer, as a director, an on-air talent. There was a recognized moment at that time in my life. I was 19, 20, 21 years old. So I had a chance after the Sydney Olympics, even when I went back to the States, I think you acknowledge this, then the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. And then on the other side of that, a few games with ESPN, a couple of X games, a couple of golf tournaments, but then ultimately with the 2002 FIFA World Cup in Seoul, uh, Korea, that was one of the cities we were in and also Tokyo, Japan, which was absolutely incredible. And I was having a blast and all the while I was still trying to discern, okay, how am I going to mix this up from the travel and the sports, but also this philosophy and history degree where I think I'm going to go to law school. And uh, I really just reflected on thinking of my childhood and my upbringing and what I cared about and the way I was raised and even some of the, the, the mission components at Boston College, which, um, which really were transformative for, for me as a student in that age of my life. And I was introduced to CCS Fundraising, which is the company I'm presently with through a family friend. And at that time, it just made sense to me where the mission and market meet to an extent. CCS is a for-profit advisory company, a professional services firm, but really serving the social impact sector and nonprofit organizations. And that, that combo just made a lot of sense and seemed to be a, a bit deeper, a bit different, just a bit more about when is the next show? When is the next game? When is the next airplane to really d dive in and, and connect more deeply with these social purpose organizations? And Greg, one I thing think to the next. Right with that, by the way, because um, I've, you know, that coda here, you know, we're a for profit professional services advice firm, but um, we work at the intersection of those two things. You know, you've, you've got the, the social and environmental community type issues that you're, you're working and you're trying to help the people that work you know, every day in those sectors and people that, that fund those sectors. Um, and that makes work very rewarding and meaningful. And we're going to come to, to talk about um, your life in that respect. But just before we move on from the sports, because I think it is a kind of, it's a bit of a bridge um, from one to the other. Um, you are doing work now with the Development Council for US Soccer Federation. And uh, just tell me a little bit about um, what that entails, uh, it's you know, it sounds pretty interesting to me. Uh, and obviously, you've got your passion for sports, but it, it brings in the um, the theme of development. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that and what what you're doing and what your attraction to it is. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up, David. That's another place to your point about the intersections, or even Coda, or for me with CCS, or just 
part of my life story and life journey. The fact that I've been playing soccer since I was four or five years old, as, as long as I can remember, played through uh, part of college. And now my wife and I have two daughters, Mary and Laura, who are 10 and 12, and they play soccer and I've coached their soccer teams. Some of my best friends are still buddies I played soccer with in junior high school, high school and college. So it's been a theme throughout my life. And several years ago, I had an opportunity to reconnect at a pretty high level at the, at the U.S. soccer level as a volunteer, as a donor, something that was meaningful to me. So, so much of giving is about somebody asks you to actually give. So somebody from U.S. soccer reached out. I had reached out to them. In fact, they had formerly worked at CCS. So they were kind of inviting me into some of the strategy discussions. And I just thought, you know, this is a different, this is a nice time. This makes a lot of sense uh, where I am in a, from a life station where U.S. soccer is organizationally to lean in a little bit more, to take it on more as a volunteer effort. And by that started making contributions, serving on the development council, which in many ways is to help promote the sport, is to advocate on behalf of U.S. soccer, is of, of course to contribute this classic time, talent, and, and treasure. So show up to meetings, give good advice, perspective to the extent that you can, and also make meaningful investments year on year that, that, can, uh, that can accumulate. And that that kind of the apex of that experience, and, and hopefully it's still going to get better because, uh, well, the Women's World Cup, as we know, and the Americans will certainly be there. They're much better than the guys at this point. It's going to be in Australia, New Zealand in just a few months, but then it comes back to the States for the guys in 2026 is going to be the yeah. big World Cup. But I'd recently been with my family, too, to Qatar for that World Cup with the Development Council for so, uh, U.S. Yeah. Soccer, which was really phenomenal. So how who's who's going to win the World Cup, the, the Women's World Cup here, Greg? There's only one answer, surely, for you. I don't know. <laughs> the right, the answer for this for this needs to be uh, the Aussies. You know, yes, the second correct. answer for you needs to be the the you know U, UK, the the Brits. But but my, my answer is the Americans. You, you have to have, that has to be your answer, right? But you you were right. Probably let's go for the Australians. Home ground advantage. One of the best players in the world, and you know a very. Uh, a very raucous crowd, no doubt, behind them. So let's go for Australia. And um, yeah, you're on record as saying United States. So we'll move on from that. Um, okay, so Greg, get, getting into the the, um, the development side of things. I mean, you've raised and helped um, your clients and organizations that you volunteered for raise an awful lot of money over a very successful, you know, purposeful career. But you've worked with such a wide variety of organizations. I'm interested in when you look back on your career so far, given you've worked with such a wide variety of organizations, they all need different things. They've all got different stories. What are the common denominators when it comes to successfully raising funds for charitable causes, irrespective of what the cause might be, in your opinion? Yeah, you're right, David. I mean, o over the years, whether it's different sectors or different geographies, different leadership teams, board structures, even size itself, we've raised money. And I've, I've helped advise the raising of money of million dollar organizations up to multi-billion dollar organizations. But directly to your question, there are some core principles like anything else, the first order rules, first order principles, like you might see in most businesses or different sectors or disciplines, uh, even within science, you can look at it in so many different ways. 
But I would say the core threads, the, the commonalities, and we've actually done a little bit of research together on this, right? With CODA yeah. and CCS, we've had a few publications. Usually there needs to be the right kind of reputation. That the rep, you know, when, when you think of an organization that it's decidedly good or decidedly positive or it's on the up and up. And so that reputational piece is, is really important. That's a common feature. I would say secondly, that there's a there's a story, there's a narrative, there's a message that is captivating and compelling for people. Sometimes we refer to that as a case for support or a unique value proposition, a philanthropic value proposition. But why would people contribute? Why would they contribute more money than they typically contribute? What, what, why and why now is, is really critical. Uh, the third piece that we see as a common denominator is definitely leadership, the quality of leadership. We always say in fundraising, it's not uh, what you're asking for, but who is asking for and and, and what are they asking for on, on behalf of which organization? So having real philanthropic leaders and champions at the C-suite level, the development level, the board level is indispensable. And, and then a, a few of the other pieces, of course, you need people to ask who are the, the donors that you have relationships with, whether they're individuals, foundations, or companies, and also to find success you need to set realistic goals. They should be ambitious. They should catapult the organization from one way to the next. But to get that measurement right, the plan right, the strategy right, and just the the team, the the, the professionals, and I would even say the the guide, the guidance, the expertise to to ensure success and adapt along the way. That's that's um, really interesting. I think really valuable to to anyone here who's trying to raise funds, Greg. Um, one one thing that occurred to me listening to that was your first one was reputation, your third one was leadership, the people, and I, I can't help thinking as soon as I hear that that um, the people can help the reputation. In fact, I think the people can change the reputation because, frankly, a, a lot of people who be prospective donors are either not equipped uh, or, or simply don't do the work to fully analyze the impact. Um, that an organization has out there in the real world. And so we'll take um, almost as a proxy for the quality of the work, the people who are driving the organization. And so I'm kind of just gonna pull forward and just see what you have to say about it. The idea that reputation of course can be, is it can and is a historical thing, but it can be changed by people and can be driven by people and their association with the organization. So. Do you firstly do you agree with that? And don't feel you need to, but um, just maybe talk a little bit more as well around how important it is to have the right people involved and, and the right people talking to potential donors. Yeah, I think it's a great insight, David, and I do agree. And to the point of the sequencing, if it was reputation and value proposition and leadership and prospects and donors. I would agree with you with all those commonalities and ingredients, uh, chief among equals would be leadership. If you have the right leaders and the right position at the right time, they can completely shift the direction, the trajectory of any nonprofit, any social enterprise, any organization for that matter. We see that with government. We see that with business. And a lot of that does come down to communication and what is the message. But Bigger and deeper than that is the culture and culture starts at the top. And that's typically with the executive director of the nonprofit or the CEO equivalent or the president. And 
I can't emphasize that enough. We, we would definitely share that view. And look, one of the challenges in the nonprofit sector is how do you attract, retain, and motivate the best of the best talent when there are a lot of options and a lot of different sectors that people can go into? So a lot of times you find mission first, there's somebody at a different stage in their, their career, they've had a life experience, and this is their purpose in, in this world, whatever it might be, everybody has their own motivational moves, but leadership cannot be underscored enough. And, that, and that's its own topic altogether. You'll, you'll typically find right at the, at the head of an organization, which direction is it going? Is it going up? Is it going down? Or is it just going sideways? Oftentimes, that's a reflection of whether it's just the leader or the leadership team or the board or the culture that's been created there. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so you've talked about ingredients for success, you know, um, in your experience, Greg, why, why do organizations that stand out to do better in a fundraising sense? Uh, why do they, if you, again, if you kind of have kind of common denominators or uh, precedents for this, why do they? What are the reasons behind why they don't succeed? What, what, where do they go wrong? Yeah, so conversely, and you, you can consider each of those points to an extent, and, and I'll, I'll add a few to that as well. But um, for each of those moments, and there are certain capacities. So I just, I just want to be clear on that. In other words, even oftentimes when I'm invited in or CCS is invited in, with an organization and we've worked with Sydney Children's Hospital, University of New South Wales, University of Newcastle, all in around Sydney, down in Melbourne with Menzies Foundation and Mercy Health and so many others. But you know, oftentimes when we're brought in, there's, a, there's an element and there are usually a couple of questions about um, you know, how much money do you think we can raise? How long is it gonna take? And, and what's required to make that happen. And it, and it does kind of boil down to two questions. What is our external view, our capacity, our visibility? And internally, what's our readiness? What is our structure? Like what are our systems, our operations, our, our organizational dynamics? Who are the people in those positions? So I just say those things because neither one are necessarily fixed assets. I, I, I've learned this from uh, several different CEOs in, in the States and Canada and, and even in Australia that to an extent, your, your message, your case for support can be an evolvable asset. And so can your prospect base, your, your, your current donors with, within those donors themselves. If you think of lifetime value, so commitments that are upgraded year on year or new donors altogether. And the, the reason I paint that is because your point, where can organizations go wrong? If there's kind of a stuck mindset or a or a fixed mindset where it's not an evolvable asset or a growth mindset and if there aren't big dreams and audacious goals and supporting plans uh, but i would say amidst all that if there's one thing that really sticks out oftentimes it is under investment it's saying okay we have these big dreams and goals and plans and we want to go there but then for whatever reason, constraints imposed, otherwise lack of appetite, it does happen. There, there's not the investment attitude in leadership, in the talent, in the team that's required to go from A to B. Well, Greg, you, you said that at the end, you know, talent, leadership, team, you know, and that to me points to something I wanted to, to build on. Um, I, I see when it doesn't work that often, um, organizations are focused on the first of the three things you first of the three questions you mentioned earlier 
how much do we want? And then maybe a fundraiser is a sign of responsibility chiefly for that and uh, is almost unexpected to just deliver. There isn't too much thought sometimes around how long it will take and very importantly, what the required investment is. Um, there's just almost like, well, we, we, we have what we have today, but we've decided on a, on a higher goal. So let's go after that goal and, and it's your job to do it with fundraiser. And I don't think that works um, particularly well. Um, so that, that, that talent, the team, the investment, I think it's, it's super important, isn't it? Um, here in Australia, um, how, how do you look at our approach to fundraising, Greg? Because you've got an existence in two worlds, right? You're doing your work in the States and you're doing your work here. And we all know that um, uh, the development fundraising and philanthropy sectors in, in the States are, um, uh, are more developed, frankly, obviously, than they are here. Um, so how do you see us when you come here and do your work? How do you see the, the Australian fundraising scene? And how do you see the, um, the next phase? What do you think it's going to um, look like in Australia? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. You're at, and you're absolutely right, David. And it, it is multiple worlds. If you look at all the different sectors and societies, I mean, the, the U.S. has its own thing happening, right? And, and look, it's a 22, 23, $24 trillion economy economy. So even when you look at 2% of that, that gets you in the 400, 450, almost $500 billion that flow every year. So part of it is it's all just relative to size. But even in the States, I mean, as you might imagine, as we see play out in politics, sometimes too, dare I bring that up, but by different geographies, you have New England is a certain way and the West Coast is a different way and the Southeast is a different way, but there's a different kind of size there. Even in, in, in Canada, it's about a 10th of the size of, of uh, the U.S. in terms of economic um, just bandwidth altogether. Europe, UK in particular is different. But when I think of Australia, I think of amazing opportunity and big upside. And the way the economy has grown over the years and been resilient and robust. And we've all had challenges the last three years in particular, but there have been so many magazines, right? I mean, whether it's Fortune or whether it's Barron's, or whether it was The Economist at one point with the Aussie economy on that. And I, I recognize with some of the commodities and even with real estate and the cooling of certain markets. But I think the sector overall is becoming a lot more sophisticated and professionalized, sophisticated, certainly on behalf of philanthropists and professionalized on behalf of fundraisers. A couple of data points, and they're, they're just that, but they're things that anchor some of my thinking. I mean, even most recently, is it four commitments of nine figures have been made in the last six to 12 months of $100 million dollars? Plus, and you have uh, Ramsey and uh, McLeod, and and I mean, there, there's just there, there are kind of these big names, big foundations that are that are going forward here. The other indicator is uh, the billion dollar campaign that's uh, that's tends to evolve, right? Whether Sydney had that or Melbourne had that, so yeah, that's by size of complexity, duration, and, and structure for the campaigns, and then the, the kind of gifts that are being made. I also see a lot more data reporting and transparency on the sector. That's one of the lagging factors of a market economy and its derivative with philanthropy. So I think there's big upside there. I think also some of the themes are shared globally too, or at least with some of the, the Western economies. If you think about environment, if you think about mental health, if you think about all things equity, 
diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and even justice. Those are big things and themes. I think they're generational. I think they're societal. I think that's of this moment. And I think a lot of organizations are seeing a big response to that, whether it's business investment, public finance, or, or philanthropic contribution. So I'm, I'm very excited about the upside and, and the longer term potential of Aussie philanthropy. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer and very in, insightful. Um, and I'd add, um, I almost feel like a Grinch here because it feels negative. I don't mean it to be, but I'd also add that I think there's a, a sense of obligation starting to emerge here in Australia that I saw when I worked in in, in um, America for Merrill Lynch. The idea that that you have um, living and working in the US, you've got you know you've got your obligations to family, you've got your obligations to work. But then you got your obligation to community, and it was a real, it felt like a real thing to me. You know, it's like this is kind of expected of, of us. Uh, we, I don't think we've had that to, to anywhere near that extent in Australia, but I kind of feel like it's starting to emerge. And I say it's not a negative thing because I think it's really positive that people feel that sense of community, um, and they feel like they, if they have particularly got the means and resources to do it, that they have some sense of obligation to to support that community and work with it and be part of it. So that, that to me might be promising in the philanthropy sense here as well. Greg, um, so we're talking about, you know, maybe a bright future for philanthropy. We're talking about an evolving uh, nonprofit and fundraising scene. And we're talking about um, leadership and uh, all that kind of, when the, when the rubber hits the road, that means an individual has to go to another individual and ask them for money, uh, essentially, right? So the, the, the ask um, is the next thing I want to talk about. And I'd love to hear, and I'm sure there'll be people who, who are in that situation would love to hear it too. How, how would you say to people to think about asking someone for money? Because that, that is probably, after all the organization's been done, the hardest thing for most people, isn't it? Most people haven't been schooled on that. Most people, frankly, are probably um, slightly uncomfortable or at least uh, uncertain as to how to even approach a conversation like that. So. Can you give us some um, some basics on that? A little few tips, perhaps. Yeah, I'd be happy to, David. And um, I mean, just just even briefly on the on the last conversation, I I I do think part of that is because of not the welfare state, but there there are certain public goods or services that are even offered, right? You think of education and medicine and healthcare, and that it's just different between the U.S., Australia, Canada. UK and others. So I to your point, like, why do people give? Well, somebody asked them, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a second, or the real or perceived impact of a gift, or they're reciprocating, or because they think that they are going to make a meaningful difference, or a sense of obligation to community. I do seeing that, I, I think it's going to continue to lift. I mean, even the medical research institutes and everything that's happening in Melbourne around children's and Murdoch and that whole kind of ecosystem that I think is one of the most amazing and unique places on the planet in, in terms of what's being discovered and promoted globally around. I think that's going to continue. Centers like that, places like that, place-based giving will continue to flow and attract. To your exact question, though, that you just asked, it is funny that the art and the science of the ask, so to speak, and a lot has been written about this and people have talked about it. It is funny to me. I was in D, uh, Washington, D.C. today with one of our cherished client partnerships and meeting with the CEO and 
uh, his, his a couple of board members and a, and a couple of fundraisers. And we were talking through it and, and we're all finding agreement about this. And we were doing a little bit of, of role playing of asking for the gift. And at the end of the day, it's a relationship like anything else in life. And it's funny that we create these grids or these dashboards or the, the science around what we call a moves management, so to speak, which is an element of you know, a, a customer relationship management system, right? A CRM, how is somebody quote unquote coded? Are they in a discovery phase or cultivation phase? Or is this the time where we brief them about our organization and our projects? Is that really a pre-ask before the ask? But my point in saying that is to, to what you're saying, it is a relationship. It's a conversation. Most people that we've seen when a best practice and great result follows is that the prospective donor isn't surprised. They're not alarmed. They're not thinking, where did that come from? What is this about? David, why are you asking me? Why are you asking me to give to this cause? And, and who gave you permission to ask for that amount of money? You know, like, like that doesn't happen in a best practice. It's you, you lead up to that. You understand what are their philanthropic priorities in life? What are their life circumstances? What's most important for them? How do they envision their legacy? over time? How are they thinking about their kids and their grandkids? Why is this organization so important to them? What have their unique experiences been? So those kind of leading questions, and there's an invitation to understand them better and their relationship with you and that organization. And, and in many ways, the, the step before the quote unquote ask or the proposal is almost receiving permission, whether it's direct or implied, that you can prepare a proposal for their consideration. And it seems aligned with what impact that they want to make in the world. The request amount is within reason. It can always be a little bit bigger than people are envisioning, but you want to help the donor. What, what do you need from us to make this number possible? Is it time? Is it different resources? Is it other assets? Is it to make a contribution to raise a certain amount and then create a matching? So you, you kind of work with them a little bit, but it, I mean, there, there are certain letters involved, there are proposals that are submitted. And at the end of the day, usually there is also an ask amount. And it might actually play out in a way that you're asking somebody as a result of their historical generosity and the way that they prioritize the organization to continue partnering with you. You're hoping you can count on them in the future. And, and would they give consideration to a commitment of, $5,000, $500,000, million over a said period of time to transform the world in this particular way. And that size amount is all relative to the organization, to the donor, and, and the vision for change. Thank you, Greg. Um, yeah, again, that's really interesting. And I want to pick out one thing from what you said that resonates with me. And that is the, the idea that in the middle of all of this very careful, uh, scientific business-like relationship management um, process driven stuff, that you really need to understand and take the time and genuine effort to understand what the person on the other side of the table cares about, um, what they are trying to do themselves, how they like to do it. In other words, you need to really understand uh, the person on the other side of the table as opposed to trying to drive just your own agenda and get your own outcomes. And you're responding as much as anything to what you hear and learn um, from them. Is that right? 
That's exactly it, David. And oftentimes you can prepare and rehearse and even think through some of those questions early on that a, potent, a potential donor might wonder, well, why, why me? Uh, wh why now? Why for this cause? Why this amount? Who else has committed? Exactly how are you going to spend the money and use it? What are my assurances for success? What likely social return will I get? How long will you as the person who's asking me as the leader be involved in the organization? How should we be thinking about recognition? Are there tax benefits or input? You know, there's a series of questions and that could be five questions. It could be 25 questions, but which ones are most meaningful? And you're right, really through a, through a donor centricity, through their lens, what, what, what mission fulfillment are they experiencing as a donor, as a philanthropist? Greg, I see the opportunity to um, say one of my favorite things in terms of um, trying to attract major donors and, and get into the head of a major donor. And um, that is um, something that Warren McFarlane, who I know you know um, from Harvard Business School, from the Social yeah. Enterprise faculty there, um, brought to my attention. And it was from a, a book um, by a, a famous Harvard fundraiser by, Howard Steven, by the name of Howard Stevenson. And in, the, in, in his book, he talks about um, the four questions any major donor must ask. And, and they're not questions that they are going to actually ask the fundraiser, but they're questions that the fundraiser must understand these people effectively have to say yes to. And the four questions are, are you doing important work? Are you well managed? Will my gift make a difference? And will the experience be satisfying to me? And uh, to, to distill it down to those four things, I think is um, is really helpful to me when I think about it. And I see those questions really in the fundraising context as a challenge that has to be met by the fundraiser. So any any thoughts on that? No, Warren is amazing. He's a very good friend of the firm. We've worked with him on a number of initiatives in New England as you pointed out, partnerships with Harvard and Tsinghua University as well through the Schwartzman Scholars. Mm -hmm. He's been at CCS Executive Summits up in Boston. So uh, not, nothing, nothing more to say, but to, uh, to affirm that, to embrace that, and to celebrate those wise words that, that you're also relaying. Fantastic, Greg. So, um, yeah, so again, just coming back to um, Australia, um, what, what are you going to be doing on your next trip? Tell us, tell us what you're doing as you come here, because you're going to be here pretty soon, aren't you? Yeah, and I can't wait. It's been too long. It's been almost a year at this point. And there's several of us, Ian, who you know, yep. who often travels down, Lee, who is living and, and working and leading amazing work in Sydney right now. And it's the typical Friday afternoon flight that lands in Sydney, Australia, 7 a.m. on a Sunday. And by lunch on Sunday, all the way through Thursday night, it's the whole time. And uh, it really is quite a trip. I'll be in Sydney for, I think, two and a half or three days, and then Melbourne for two and a half or three days. And looking forward to seeing friends at University of New South Wales, our client partners there at Sydney Children's Hospital, University of Newcastle, also some of our friends at the Archdiocese of Sydney, um, some of our friends at the Nature Conservancy of Asia Pacific, where we've done work on an international level, and then down in Melbourne with Mercy Health. I mentioned Menzies, maybe Australia Catholic 
University, also Royal Children's as well, and that whole brilliant ecosystem of medical research that's occurring there. And, and hopefully a chance to, to have a pint or two with some of my friends uh, who, who I graduated with at UNSW back in the day and catch up on some uni days. Yeah, well, there'll be some good stories there, I reckon, too. And uh, yeah, no, it's great. You, you've got a fantastic team. It's always great to see Ian. Um, had dinner with Ian in Sydney when we did the recent events, um, CODA and CCS for um, educational institutions talking about raising and investing in endowment funds. Um, and I had dinner with Lee in, um, in Brisbane when we did a similar event up there just a week or so ago. Um, so always great to see you here. And I do hope you get a couple of those pints. Just want to kind of close, Greg, on, um, on coming back to almost where we started, which is this idea that you, you know, you set off on your career and then you, you realized there was an opportunity to do work that uh, enabled you to work in professional services, um, but also to do that in a way that was very purposeful. So you've then kind of gone on um, to make a number of commitments, professional, but also personal in a volunteering sense, all the way through. And I just wanted to kind of finish by asking you to reflect on why you think, why you think you were attracted to that and why your life and your career has involved so much purpose. Yeah, I, I do appreciate the question, David. And, you know, it's funny, you go on through life and you get some experience and you start to wonder more and more, right? You reflect on those, those purposeful questions and different moments throughout your life and, for me, it really comes back to my parents and the way I was raised and watching the way my parents acted to, together. And then within their own careers, my dad, um, he sold life insurance and just focused on life insurance. So not all different forms of life insurance, but he did it in a way that was very meaningful and purpose to him to the extent he was constantly having deep conversations about what people care most about, what they want to protect what does it mean to, to be more than just them? What happens next and beyond that and others that they love deeply about and care about and to have that kind of conversation and also develop some type of uh, financial instrument or product around it that give people peace, real peace and joy and, and comfort and knowing that. So I, I was just a, around that and I, I, I saw that through him and he was really phenomenal at it and, and very much enjoyed it. And my mom, she volunteered quite a bit of the time. She was a stay-at-home mom for a little while when I was younger, but she also ran different camps, including soccer camps, athletic camps, academic camps, and volunteered quite a bit with walkathons and in the neighborhood and phonathons. So I had those, those two frames early on of this kind of commitment to giving and to volunteering. And also on the other side, dealing with kind of these abstract or philosophical concepts of what is life about and what gives people meaning and 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 where where do they bet where do they insure where do they invest their time and and their attention and i start there i go there david because then that's carried through the the way i was raised and where i went to high school and where i went to college and then even grad school at the university of pennsylvania that kind of blend of uh, an element of philosophy and element of finance but really finding purpose and recognizing at the end of the day, it's, it's a big world and you're not pursuing joy, purpose, and happiness just for yourself. It really is about lifting those around you and the impact that you can have in the world. And I just feel so grateful to have found a career and a company and a space where I, I feel that I can make a difference in the life of others. Yeah. Well, you do. I mean, you're, um, 
your commitment and your skills are very um, valuable help a lot of people and a lot, a lot of causes and that's going to be true here again and play out in your next visit um, interestingly the um, the idea of taking cues and lessons and inspiration from parents is something that comes through time and time again in these conversations Greg um, and also the idea that to give is to receive as well that comes back time and time again I mean I, I this is more a conversation for you and I but um, I have that same feeling that um, the idea that you can talk to people about what is most important and talk about important things out there in the world. Um, the idea that you can do that as part of your work and you can work at that depth um, and really, really understand what motivates people and work, work with them on things that really matter. I think that's a big privilege for us, isn't it? So that's what we, we probably get back um, whilst we're trying to do our work. So you, you've done your work extremely well. Um, you've, you know, in a financial sense, you know, you, you've raised an awful lot of money for for great causes, um, and really put power into the organisation's fundraising efforts um, for many years across many areas. And so, congratulations on all of that. Um, and I hope you have a fantastic trip. And I hope um, I hope you, your team plays very well and comes second in the final in the World Cup. <laughs> second, second there we go it's a great note to end on but just before we do david i'd be remiss if i didn't thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today like this and to thank you and coda chris ferial the others for everything that you're all doing in the community and trying to raise more awareness and trying to move more capital and more assets toward good toward impact create return, but also make a true meaningful difference in society at, at large. And I've always respected and, and valued and admired the mission even of Coda Capital. So I appreciate you convening and bringing people together and sharing the insights that, that you all have. And it's a real pleasure to speak with you today, David. Thank you. It's a, it's a really good relationship, you know that, and um, one we value, but I value your time today and I value your contribution. And my hope more than anything, Greg, is that um, there'll be people that'll listen to this that'll really benefit from your advice in terms of how to successfully engage with, with people that have capital and other resources that can help really, really important causes. So thanks for sharing that uh, wisdom and experience today. And it's been great talking to you. Have a great trip. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, David. That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, go to the podcast page on codacapital.com. You can also see there our other podcast episodes from the How I Did It series. And if you'd like to get some free insights for the charitable and nonprofit sector and for the broader investment sector, then um, head over to codacapital.com insights page. Thank you.